Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Barbara Maddock, a retired public historian who worked for the Bureau of Historic Preservations for the state of Florida. Barbara Maddock is the author of Teaching in Black and White, the Sisters of St. Joseph in the American South, published by Catholic University of America Press this coming January. Teaching in Black and White provides a rare glimpse into the personal and professional lives of women religious in Florida and Georgia from the mid-19th century to the early 20th century. The Sisters of St. Joseph, who are the focus of this book, to teach newly freed African Americans after the Civil War and remain there to this day. Maddox's book examines the sisters' contributions in shaping life in the South during Reconstruction as they established elite academics, established elite academies, and free schools, creating orphanages and ministering to all administering to all during the yellow fever epidemics. Uh, I, don't like, I don't like how that... <clears throat> Maddox's book examines the sisters' contributions in shaping the South during Reconstruction as they established elite uh, academies and free schools, created orphanages, ministered to all during the severe yellow fever epidemics and fought rising anti-Catholicism legislation that was sweeping across the rural region at this time. Barbara, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Allison. Glad to be here. Great. So before we dive into your book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I've lived most of my life in Florida. Uh, We moved here when I was about seven, then went through all of my my secondary school and everything in Fort Lauderdale, where I grew up, and went to Emory University, uh, where I majored in history. I thought I would be going into the sciences when I went is very much like now. There's a lot of emphasis on science and everything, and uh, but it only took me a quarter to find out that would not be a good choice for me. So eventually I ended up with history, which in history, which I realized my whole growing up had been a lot of history had been there, though not in a formal way. So from there, I I finally came upon this, uh, became aware of this new field of, I guess, what we call public history today. And uh, Florida did, and and it was just within years of that, Florida finally got a state museum, finally got uh, a new archives and all of that. So anyway, to get into that, uh, you basically needed a master's in history. And I decided, well, I'd go to um, a state school to do that. And thinking that I would go on to presidential libraries or something like that. So, So I came to FSU, majored in American history, got my master's in that. And I finished that, it was right in the middle of the 70s, 
much time as it is like now. It, ultimate uh, uh, inflation and could not get a job. And uh, But I finally did get um, my first permanent job with the state of Florida working as a, in the state library. And I did that for about eight years. And uh, in the course of that, because um, state employees can get free tuition and FSU is like 15 minute walk away, I, was a, I did get a master's in library science. And after that, I began, I went up to, uh, literally went upstairs to uh, transfer to the uh, Division of Historical Resources. I was very glad to get back to my field of history and ended up doing a lot of archeological nominations. Of course, I knew nothing about archeology. span So I went to go take some courses in it and ended up with a master's in, <laughs> historical uh, archaeology, anthropology, uh, and, and the historical archaeology in that. And soon after that, almost immediately, this is over a course of many years, because uh, working and is, it's only part-time. I, I really, uh, really, really had a desire to get a PhD. So I did go one more time. This is it. I um, worked back into pure history in, in the uh, history of the South. And um, that's where I got my PhD in 2008. A lot of interesting things along the way. I met people in the uh, historic preservation field, met a lot of people in the, in, over the time of working on National Register nominations. And that, so that gave me an intro into meeting some sisters of St. Joseph, was introduced by a colleague that we'd had working on nominations. And so that it just, it all just flowed. Yeah. And you know, that's a great segue to my next question. How did you get into this project? Right? Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I was, uh, of course, when you've been in school so long, you realize every paper needs to count <laughs> toward whatever you're ultimately doing. So I, uh, my thesis for my master's degree in history had been on the 1841 yellow fever epidemic in Tallahassee. And so I'd learned a lot about yellow fever and that. And But I, I just didn't want to go back into that. And so I was looking around for a topic and nothing was coming together. Uh, so I said, well, I guess I'll just do yellow fever again. So I was going to do, do my dissertation on the uh, yellow fever epidemic in 1888 in Jacksonville. And I was taking two seminars at that time. Uh, one was this, the social the social history one, and that was my paper was going to be that. I was also taking a seminar in women's history. Uh, I'd gotten a new major professor who was also primarily women's history professor, as well as the one for Florida. And she's the one who introduced me to women's history. This did not exist as a, a discipline in 72 I graduated from Emory in 72, and at that time, this didn't exist. Um, but as a result of taking this, at the same time I was taking this other seminar, I wanted a topic I could find related to yellow fever that were, was about women. And that's how I found out about the uh, Sisters of St. Joseph, who had nursed in two epidemics, 1877 and then the big Jacksonville one in 1888. So... 
as I worked on it, I found them ever so much more interesting <laughs> than just yellow fever. So I changed my topic. And uh, so I did a lot of my research then thenceforth on that instead of yellow fever. You're using also a, a lot of different sources for your research for this book, right? You're using a mix of newspapers and personal and government documents and, of course, some archive. What was the, the process of going through these documents? Did you have any challenges that you ran into doing this type of research? Well, it's the first things you were mentioning, the, the uh, government documents and newspapers and census records and all that, that that's when the historians are just used to, to deal, dealing with all of that kind of thing. And letters are also common. But in this case, letters from sisters <laughs> to their superior, you do not see that. And when I found, I heard about that they had these letters, I really was intrigued with that whole thing. They were like the, um, the crown jewels <laughs> in the archives of there. They had them at the, the archives in St. Augustine. And I'd gone over for my first introduction, introducing myself to them, other than being just introduced while some of them were in Tallahassee one time. And so I think after some evaluation, they decided that they could, could share these with me. And they had typescripts of about the, the originals, I don't know what actually happened to the the actual papers, except for a few. But the others were in Le Puy, France, uh, where the sisters had come from in their mother house. And that's the mother house where they were created as an order in 1650. So, so I did, this is sort of jumping around, but I, I did get to go to Le Puy and uh, did get to see these letters that they were had been um, what they would do is they would receive a letter from someone and then they would transcribe it. But it was the same person who did all. So the handwriting was all the same, but it was all all the same, very small, <laughs> very small. It was in French, of course. So that was a, one of the challenges was translating these letters. And they're on page, you know, the 17 by 11 inch pages, tiny writing, and um, really challenged my limitations in French. But they, uh, that was probably the most difficult part of it. The one part that was difficult with census records is that they're not given in their, their uh, secular names. It's not like Mary Jones Robinson or something like that. It's sisters, I mean, Sister Mary. Sister Mary, and then, so I would go through the uh, microfilm, for example, because I don't know where they are in this big microfilm reel, and you sort of kind of go and you look, you see where it's it's just the same, very much the same as you quickly scan through it, and so and then are trying to figure out how they have entered this. It's by their first name or by their last. They didn't use last names a lot of the time, so. Uh, so that was the other big challenge. And, and another thing challenging about this is that it took place over such a long period of time for this research to be done and then to be written um, because I was doing it as a part-time student 
doing it and taking care of my elderly parents or it's just lots of life just slows you down. And, but then to go back over 20 years now, where was that? Where did I find that? Or if, you know, it, it's, uh, it was a challenge. Right. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. Before talking about the Sisters of St. Joseph, I wanted to talk about the Sisters of Mercy because they were in Florida prior to the arrival of uh, the Sisters of St. Joseph. So what were the Sisters of Mercy doing in Florida? What was their role? And uh, how did that change when the Sisters of St. Joseph arrived? Well, the Sisters of Mercy, like the Sisters of St. Joseph, were invited to come to Florida by Bishop Vero. Now, and that was in uh, 18, he arrived in 1858. And then he was basically having to organize this, this part of the world, which had really not had much Catholic attention since, uh, since 1821, when the Americans took over. Under the Spanish, it was very Catholic. But then once the Americans took over the territory, what became the territory of Florida, um, they got the upper hand of, of governments and control. And the Catholicity remained, but it wasn't at the forefront. So they hadn't had bishops visiting them for a very long time. And then he came in 1858. He had been up in Maryland where he taught in a seminary. He was a native of La Puy, France. And as I said, he'd gone to Maryland where he was a teacher. And then they, he was appointed as a sort of a bishop. He was, a, I'd, um, anyway, he was, he then came to St. Augustine and he saw the great need for, for help. And so, so he re- went to Providence, Rhode Island to recruit Sisters of Mercy to go to St. Augustine, to come to St. Augustine where he was. And they established an academy for girls. There was the custom. They, um, it was very well established. And that was in 1859 that they arrived. They came and then there was also a, a group of brothers, Christian brothers, who came to teach boys. So, so they were there. And after the uh, initial probably uh, the people weren't too sure about it because they were coming from the North. And, um, but anyway, this was very well received, very well respected. And then the civil war started and he, um, this very funny, this ought to be a movie of it. There was this funny episode where the Bishop wanted to get them out of the way of Palm's way, get them away from St. Augustine. And so he, they, he loaded up the, the Sisters of Mercy into a cart, and they started on this way. They wanted to go to, to Columbus, where it was going to be safe, because the Union Army is coming to get, or just to be there in St. Augustine. They never did anything destructive there. But, um, and it's really well told in another, I, it's, it was too long a story, but it was just one misadventure after another. And he and they ended up getting them right into the middle of the battle that was there in Columbus. I mean, what active battle at the time. After the war, they, they lived through all that. And after the war, about half came back to St. Augustine. And they resumed teaching at St. Mary's Academy. So, well, after the war, also then, Vero was very concerned about the freed slaves. Even he had lived in Maryland. He'd lived in the United States, 
So he was very familiar with the culture and with slavery and how it was. And so he, then when he became this bishop down in Florida, he began, during the war, he had been known for his, he was one of the few bishops who spoke out in favor of slavery, but not in favor of the way they were being treated. And he's a long discourse about that. And one of the major things that he said, you know, that you, these, these are human beings, they have souls, you need to take care of them. You shouldn't be treating the women you, the way you are. And, and, and he had a lot to say about that. But as a result of all that, he was labeled as the rebel bishop. So that is, there's another book, it's called The Rebel Bishop. And that's a good source for this story of how they went up to Georgia. So when they got back to St. Augustine, they resumed teaching there, but they had half as many members. And Vero realized that there was too much to uh, ask of them to also take on the teaching of the freed slaves. So he went back to uh, Lepuy, which is where he grew up, and he recruited some sisters of St. Joseph to come to teach, teach the black slaves. And he was very eloquent in saying, we, we, um, there was a great need for this, and the Protestants have a jump on us. I mean, there are they. They started coming. They were there during the war itself, and uh, so is uh, saying these these docile people, these uh, these unfortunate black black people, and and he really filled them with a love for the black people, even though they'd never seen black people before in Lapui. Lapui is in southern. France, in the middle of the Grand Massif, this big plateau that's up above uh, Lyon, basically. So, it, and it was a very isolated area. And uh, so he went to recruit them, and about 60 volunteered, of whom they chose eight. And so uh, these eight arrived on September, in September 1866, a little over a year after the war, and um, they uh, they came and they, of course, this was all very, very foreign to them. It was the only thing familiar about it was St. Augustine has a European flavor to it because it still has its narrow streets and so many of the uh, colonial buildings are, are there. Uh, but the, the biggest problem they had is that they could not speak English. <laughs> so... And that, that really was the main hindrance to them, plus having to get used to French culture, uh, the heat, mosquitoes, and, and they, uh, they really couldn't understand why the, the white people were the way they were. <laughs> and and, and they, they've really disdained the, way, the white people because of the way they treated the, uh, the slaves, freed slaves. Right, yeah. And- that kind of leads me, you know, into my next question about the teaching of these now freed slaves, right? These these women at the heart of the book are, are not only teaching, you know, white students, but they're also teaching freed African-American students, right? You say that the French sisters' missions was to protect the former slaves from the heretical teaching of Protestant missionaries. So 
who are the students that these uh, sisters are now teaching, right? They're not just children, I assume, right? Well, they mostly were teaching children, Mm -hmm. but then at night, they started night schools for the adults. And, And at first, they, as I said, they were very hindered by their lack of English. And um, one of the big complaints and one of the big points in this competition they ended up in with the, the uh, mostly it's missionaries of the American Missionary Association. And they came from New England, basically. Well, I mean, the, the, dichotomy, the, the, the sisters couldn't speak English. The AMA Protestants could. So they could jump into teaching reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, and regular basic teachings. Because you hadn't been able to uh, educate slaves. That was against the law during the war, before the Civil War ended. But they were allowed to teach religion So during the war and, and before. So when they came, this was, it was, religion was something that they needed to, um, to address because the sisters were trying to keep the Catholic slaves, freed slaves, freedmen, keep them Catholic. And it was by far, St. Augustine was like a Catholic enclave in the South. There were not many Catholics in the South, but they were very strong there. The uh, Protestants were teaching religion also. And of course you had the Protestants thought these papists were heretics and and the, and the sisters thought that the the Protestants were heretics. So you had the papists and and the heretics. And you see in the letters, it's in the letters where you actually can see when they mention it, when they mention each other, that comes up just about every time. And the sisters bemoan the fact that they had like 150 students, whereas the Protestants had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of students. And they were teaching, they were heavily teaching uh, reading, writing, and and arithmetic, Bible teaching as well. So you had, there also was this this divergence in the sisters were teaching piety at first because they couldn't talk about about other stuff yet because it the English problem. And they would, you, I, you could see this in the, what they, the rewards, they would give holy cards and medals and that kind of thing if, as rewards. AMA, American Missionary Association, they would give Bibles as their rewards. And many, many went to them because the main thing they wanted to learn was how to read because they wanted to be, they wanted to vote. They wanted to be able to write. This was as it was in the early years. As eventually, as the sisters learned English, then they started the academics. And as more, they got new members, postulants groups from America. They had more people helping them. That's another thing. The Sisters of Mercy really helped them in these early years with the English and also introducing them to um to the black community that was there so eventually they it was equal and the education once it they were able it was equal whether it was uh 
the freed slaves or the poor whites, they usually were, they were just taught the same way. And they had the same sorts of closing exercises at the end of a school year and the competitions, you know, essays and singing and recitals and that kind of thing. And they, when they had the, a contest kind of thing between who's going to get the prize for this or that, they did, they did as well, if not better than the public schools sometimes. With the Protestants, there was a letter that explained how they would help them also, you know, paying their bills and showing them how to do that and uh, visiting in their homes. And so, so it was very much, it's the same, but different <laughs> to me. I mean, their, their intent was the same. They both wanted to save the blacks as they referred to them. And that's how they referred to in, in the French. It's mm -hmm. say the same thing. So that's that's how the teaching was, and then it ended up basically. I, I think they um, they were so confounded, very confounded by the uh, black religion, and it, because without the constraints, uh, the I, the African Americans now were able to start their own churches, and many of them, some of the Catholics too, switched over to this because they could be the pastors and the leaders and they could worship the way they wanted to worship. And they, they were just, they couldn't believe <laughs> the way that they worshiped. I mean, their style was so different. And, and I kind of imagine it's like, here they are at each other, the Protestants and the Catholics. And then meanwhile, the blacks are just going out the back door and starting their own denominations. So the the part of your book i found so fascinating was this rivalry between the the sisters and the protestant american missionary association the ama as you said we should probably talk about these sisters since they are the focus of your book right what else can you tell us about the the sisters who came over right we we know their names but you know what can you tell us about them well that's one of the things i wanted to achieve was to be able to try to portray them as women, as people. And they had feelings, they had disappointments, they had things that were uh, funny. You get their personalities somewhat through their letters. Um, the Of the eight, three of them were, you'd say mature seasoned sisters. Um, Mother Sidoni, was about, was 40 when she came. And then uh, Sister Julie Lucelle was 36 and uh, Josephine Deliage was uh, in her thirties also. Other than that, the five others with them were all brand new novices in their twenties. And uh, when they, I think that mix was good. You had the, the, the stability and the, the the wisdom of the older ones but you had the exuberance and um ready to go for whatever you know with with the younger ones and um the one one of the ones sister julie she was funny <laughs> and she had a very dry sense of humor and she talked about one time on the on the ship coming over it's a three-week voyage and um they had debated, they'd been hearing about all this Catholicism that was going on in, the, in America. 
in the 1850s, just 10 years before the burning down of the convent in Charlestown and Massachusetts. And, um, so they debated whether they should wear their habits or not. And they decided they would. So they're wearing their habits and they, um, they found that they were seen as curiosities by these Protestants who maybe had never seen a nun before. I have to realize that, that then in the South, or actually, unless you're from, from the North, you haven't really even seen a, a nun. So, but they did, so they, but they were respected. They were def, deferred to, they, they, um, so they, they, they weren't harassed or anything like that. And they uh, would have their meals uh, on the ship. Then there was a dining area. And so they would sit at table. And Sister Julie said, we had to just, we had to always have to stifle our laughter because, I mean, they would want to talk. And it was, but see, these Americans, they're so somber. I say, I don't know if they, they can laugh. And um, they said, and it would be, they would have no difficulty with silence because it wouldn't be any, anything missing for them. <laughs> And then there were, were other things, but th that was her personality. She was act. She was the one that mostly uh, worked in Mandarin, which is a little community south of Jacksonville, near Jacksonville. So that's north of Saint Jacksonville is north of Saint Augustine. And then uh, Sister Josephine was just. She was more just drier. Just she wasn't funny really, but she, but. She would say what she thought about things. So then the adventuresome, more adventuresome ones, when they heard about the yellow fever epidemic, it was when they were on their retreat. And the bishop came and said, there they need people to nurse. And some of them had, this for the, in 1877, I was in Fernandina, which is uh, north of Jacksonville. And they were on a retreat and some of them, had, they had a house there. A few of them were there. So they went back and most of the town was deserted. Most people had evacuated. And, but most usually the case was that poor people and the black people couldn't do that, couldn't afford that. So they were there though, and they tended to the sick. They buried, knew how to take care of people for burial stuff. And, uh, and two of them died in it but they were it was almost like they were anticipating going because they they one in one letter there's this discussion among, with another sister about how if we're missionaries we're supposed to be suffering <laughs> they were just looking for their chances to suffer and um so they they did experience that and i actually they did not really know each other until they um came out because they're little places in the valleys and the crags and uh, in the mountains there on the in near Lapui. And uh, so they had not been, they were sisters of St. Joseph or the, the novices. They were probably at the, at the mother house for their, when they were novices, but generally the older ones probably didn't know each other because they're different places. You hinted on it a little bit there at the start, this, you know, anxiety or fear potentially of the anti-Catholicism that's going on in the U.S. at this time or 
10 years prior to their arrival, right? And I wanted to talk about that anti-Catholicism that these women did face. You said they didn't, they were not harassed, but as you explained, there was a great amount of anti-Catholicism legislation in Florida or legislators that were in Florida during the 1910s. So what were these women dealing with? Well, it's anti-Catholicism had been in America from the colonial period. And, and, and Catholics were outlawed. Catholic, they couldn't hold office. They couldn't, they didn't have religious freedom. They, I mean, um, and, but with the, the um, end of the American Revolution, they did gain this religious freedom. And at first, there were so few Catholics in the South that anti-Catholicism wasn't really even a thing <laughs> for them. And, um, but by the 1910s, there was a rise of anti-Catholicism partially fueled, or largely fueled, I say, by uh, anti-Catholic writers who put forth periodicals that were anti-Catholic. And it was at the time when there was change in the South, in the United States, with progressivism, the rise of, of um, industrial cars being invented. It was just a change, social change going on. And then people who are alarmed at that, sim- it, again, it's similar to what we're going through today, started publishing these anti-Catholic Things. And the two that were most important were Tom Watson, who was a Georgia. He was a Georgia legislator, and he published the Jeffersonian magazine. And then the, another one's called The Menace, and, and it was by uh, Phelps, who was a publisher. And that would go, that went across the country. But in the South, it was taken up a lot by the the small towns and the businesses and all who were concerned about all these changes going on. So then it did affect Florida politics. A lot of the uh, 1916 election for governor focused a lot on anti-Catholicism, which led to all these, the other things of the um, legislation, The, the legislators, some, you know, the, the legislative process is a very strange thing. It, it can be, if it's done, if, if, the way it is in your civics books, you do a, you hear a bill, you had, it's all, everybody knows, it's all clear, everybody understands what it's about, and then you vote on it, and, and that's the result of that. But bills will go, and that some of them never get read before they're voted on. And, for instance, there was a... Um, an anti-garb bill. Isn't at 1913 was the year when they had the most anti-Catholic legislation, and an anti-garb bill that it said that uh, you could not teach in public schools, or you couldn't teach basically. Uh, you had to remove all your insignia, like you couldn't wear a cross, you couldn't wear. Uh, others point out, well, those who opposed this bill said, well, that would put you know, Epworth Methodists, like women couldn't wear their Epworth pins or the other Christian organizations. Um, so, but that bill is called the Anti-Garb Bill. And it was thought 
the legislators just voted on it without really reading it. They thought it had something to do with garbage control. <laughs> so so it, it's a tricky thing to get good legislation. And, but uh, some of these passed, some of them didn't. Uh, the a typical other ones where they had they re, uh, reading the Bible, but it had to be the King James version. Couldn't be a Catholic Bible and King James. It also affected the, the gubernatorial race in 1916. Uh, there was a man called Sidney J. Katz, and he had been a, um, a pastor, his Baptist pastor, an insurance agent in Florida, and he ran for governor, and, and he ran on an anti-Catholic um, platform, but he was, re he was elected. Turned out he was elected, and turned out he was a pretty good governor, and all, he claimed all of that that was just all politics. Now he's not anti-Catholic and all that. So, so also then, aside from the election, at the same time then, they had, there's a big splash all over the newspapers, even in Europe, that three nuns had been arrested in St. Augustine. And this was because one of the bills that the legislature passed was saying that it was illegal for whites to teach whites in black schools and blacks to teach. It was a very confusingly written bill. Anyway, they were they were arrested. Three of the nuns were arrested, the, the mother superior and two sisters who taught in the schools. And in the book, there's a picture of that class. And they're they're in that picture. They were they were white and they were teaching blacks in a black school. So it went to court and after much bringing your hands and waiting and waiting that the decision finally came down. Well, that does that only applies to public schools. It does not apply to private schools. So the very thing they'd come from France to do, they were still allowed to do after that. And the, the bishop at that time uh, was Curley, Michael Curley. And he was a very, he was, a, he was young. He was very modern. He was very, he wasn't going to stand for this anti-Catholicism. And so the point that I try to make in the book is I think, I believe that the whole thing was a setup to get the sisters arrested so it would go to court, so it would get a final decision, because it was clear that they, that shouldn't be. <laughs> so that was the big, the big event of the, the anti-Catholicism. And then over the years, then they... Anytime there were these big crises like the yellow fever epidemics, and then the teaching of the schools was so beneficial, that all served to help quell any anti-Catholicism and to join the Protestants and the Catholics together. They, like um, in St. Augustine, one of the sisters was known as the angel of St. of I mean, uh, Jacksonville for the Jacksonville yellow fever. Epidemic work and the other work she did in Jacksonville before that. All it was such a fascinating book to read, and especially that case too. So, Barbara, I'm curious: Do you think that the sisters succeeded in what they set out to do in Florida? One one um, mother Helene was saying, "I don't understand how we have any students." And she they had about 150, where they have these huge schools and they have all these teachers and they have all these books and they're supported by the government and they you know basically and and sometimes and their parents are paid to send their students to the classes so um 
I think when it came down to it, I, I think Vero maybe, I don't know if he would have considered them the sisters that he brought over as uh, successful, as a successful thing. But I'd say, yes, they did, because they did. They, they kept the Catholics Catholic most by the most, for the most part. And then they did all these other things that established Catholicism much on a much stronger Florida and then in Georgia, but most Florida is what I mostly talk about. So I'd say, yes, they were because they're still here and they're, they're still doing what they're supposed to do. I see we're running out of time here. I have one more question for you and that's what projects are you currently working on? Are there any lingering questions that you uh, have from writing, teaching in black and white? Or are you going in a new direction, right? You're retired now. Are you Are you still writing? Or are you going to now relax? <laughs> well, I'm thinking I'd like to um, look into the history of the Episcopal orders because um, they're not very well known even among Episcopalians and Catholics. I mean, very rarely know that there are Episcopal nuns. There's one in particular, uh, the Sisters of St. Mary, the, the community of St. Mary is the oldest one. So I'd like to uh, do a look into the history, their history and perhaps others. Well, that all sounds really fascinating. And if you write a book about it, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you, Barbara, for joining us. Thank you. I hope uh, you, you have some wonderful more books to to review that'll be good <laughs> well this has been new books in catholic studies a podcast channel on the new books network